0: Well, here we are, and it is indeed just 24 hours until the beginning of the greatest sporting event on the planet, bar none. We are the, the champions FIFA of the World Cup. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have minded if you said Kickstart or something like that.
1: Podcasts don't work that way. You're saying it's 24 hours. This isn't a radio well, program. You know, no, no, so no, no. It could, no, be, it could no, be 48 no. hours after it began. 48 years.
0: If you're listening to this show from the moment that it came out, then let me think now. They usually go online about sort of midday, and the tournament kicks off officially around about sort of 9 pm UK time. Let me just work this out now. Hang on a second. I'll restate this. If you are listening to this podcast from the precise moment that it was uploaded to the server, then we are now just 33 hours away from the start of the FIFA World Cup 2014. What better to talk about on this week's Sitcom Club spin-off than the World Cup itself? Now, I was all geared up for this. I made a ton of notes early on. I was on a long train journey. I made a ton of notes. I had all this sort of analysis about all the different teams and the different groups, the different matches. I had stacks of old Rothman's football yearbooks I was going to go through and what have you. We were going to look at the whole sort of the history of the tournament and, and, and who's shone and, and who should have done better and so on. And then I spotted a flaw in this plan. Osho, you don't actually like football, do you?
1: No. I'm not somebody who denigrates the sport like i occasionally see people just complaining about the very existence of sport and sport related media i'm not one of those people but i have no interest in sport i'm going to be a very limited use here i mean there's one piece of information that i need to double check with you because i'm fairly sure i'm right but i could be wrong have scotland ever won the world cup
0: now, you know perfectly well that Scotland's never won the World I Cup. I
1: can't be entirely sure. I mean, how long's the World Cup been going? 200
0: years? The World Cup's been going since 1930. And no, Scotland have never won it. Okay. And I think that you knew that I couldn't. No, I couldn't
1: this. be 100% sure. <laughs> they might have won it in 1930. I mean, one time that the World Cup did cross my path in an unavoidable way was when I was sent a promotional single for, I think it was the 1998... Scotland World Cup single.
0: Now, that would have been Delamitri singing, Don't come home too soon. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. I mean, okay, it might be misplaced to say, "Well, yeah, we're going to win. But that did seem remarkably defeatist. I do remember there was a line, Even long shots make it.
0: Oh, okay. Well, the background to that is that throughout our illustrious history, Scotland have never made it out of the first stage of the World Cup. On the occasions when we've qualified, and we haven't actually qualified for the World Cup since 1998, believe it or not, but there was a period, particularly in the 1970s, when Scotland was a dead cert for qualifying. And we actually qualified for five tournaments in a row, between '74 and '90. when England didn't, leading to the famous lyric by Andy Cameron about how England are going to have to be watching Scotland at the World Cup because they didn't qualify.
1: What about We're Going to Spain by the Crankies? Is that a World Cup song? Or is that just a general we, the Crankies, are going on holiday to
0: Spain? Well, no, hang on a second, because no, we're getting into an interesting area. Let, let me just let me just put this on the Those of you who man, are particularly we...
1: interested in football,
0: give this a miss. This is why I'm going to put our lengths on the table, uh, to use Last of Summer Wine vernacular, instead of that really in-depth look at the Wall Cup and all its different permutations. And let's face it, you can get that on the BBC, for goodness sake. You didn't come here for that, not really. We're going to talk about everything but the Wall Cup. In other words, we're going to talk about all the different bits and pieces. Principally, we're going to talk about broadcasting, because that's obviously big interest of ours. We talk a lot about television and so on, so we're going to be talking a lot about that. We're going to be talking about the big questions to do with the World Cup, for example, we're going to be looking at the curse of ITV. I can tell, Ocho, you're interested already. You're, you're suddenly sitting up in your chair and thinking, what's oh, this? I haven't, had, I haven't this? had an answer to
1: my question yet about the
0: Crankies. Well, no, nah, nah, break, break's on. Break's on. We're building up to it. We're going to be talking about all sorts of World Cup paraphernalia and what have you. And let's start the conversation by talking about World Cup songs. Now, I'm going to go over to the chock block computer and we'll just put in Cranky's 1982 Spain. Let's have a look. Now, my gut instinct tells me that this is not going to be an official World Cup song because you've got basically this weird situation where every four years, and of course every other four years you have the European Championships, so you get a lot of official records for that as well. You have this situation where you get, like, the official team record. Back home.
1: Something, 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 something. Back home.
0: Back home. We'll be thinking of England while we are far away. Now, how how come I know the lyrics to that and I'm in Scotland, for goodness sake? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we have to bloody well listen to every episode of football focus. That is the greatest official or unofficial football record ever recorded. It's fabulous. And do you know what's so fabulous about it? It's called Going All The Way. And in the European Championships from 1988, England lost every match.
1: (laughs) No, it's just, I remember at school when England got knocked out, it became, we're going home today (laughs) to Heathrow Airport.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. I like that they actually added the next lyric as well. (laughs) Right, okay, now let me. I'm just. Okay, the JogBot computer has been having a good long think about this, and now it's about to spit out the answer, so here we go. It is! It is! It says it here. Yes, there it is. It says it's the official 1982 UK 7 inch for the Scotland World Cup team. There is the addition of the official 1982 Scotland World Cup mascot called Sandy on the cover to back this up, plus the SFA copyright below his boot. Wow! That is amazing, because I, I really would have thought that that was jumping on the bandwagon tat that had come out at the same time. There are some classics of the sort of the unofficial genre. Let's look at this from a linear perspective. So in 1966, you've got your man, who I believe you've seen live, Lonnie Donegan. World Cup Willie! There you go. Everybody knows that, of course. 1970, you've already sung a little bit of it, back home. There you go. In fact, I um,
1: I did used to collect football stickers, just for the sake of collecting. And I had one that was like a miniature of the World Cup 1966 poster. And because it was so retro, I decided I wanted a bigger version of this on my wall and had my dad take it to work and use the company photocopier to make a black and white blow up. And all the kids at school laughed at me when I said I was having my World Cup Willie enlarged. Oh.
0: Dear me. <laughs> I would tell you what the official England song of 1974 and 1978 was, but, as Andy Cameron's already pointed out, they didn't qualify. So we have to go forward to 1982. Do you
1: get such a thing as songs that come out that were obviously intended to be a World Cup song? At one point, I thought you were going to find that if you couldn't get an official World Cup link between We're Going to Spain, that it might be a speculative World Cup song that then got turned into a generic holiday song is there such a thing as a song you hear and you think hang on a minute I'm pretty sure that's like occasionally you'll hear something by a band and you think that's your James Bond submission that got turned down. I, I
0: I would have said Gut Instinct says no because for the World Cup of any particular year particularly the teams, for example, in Europe, you will have qualified for that competition at the very, very latest, by the beginning of December, and more likely it's going to be at some point in October that you'll have qualified. That's long enough then for any prospective songwriters to knock up some piece of shit to end up on the shelves of HMV alongside the official track. But the strange thing that's happened is that as time's gone on, the unofficial track has actually sort of taken over a little bit from the official one. So, for example, you've got your official tat, this time, 1982, brackets, we'll get it right, which was the- Oh,
1: that is maybe a close second to Don't Come Home Too Soon.
0: <laughs> this was actually spoofed by Radioactive, under the I think it was under the guidance of Philip Pope. They then recorded, next time, <laughs> the official England <laughs> anthem for 1983. 1986... They recorded, we've got the whole world at our feet. See? Ah, yes. There you go.
1: We got the whole world at our feet. I think it, it wasn't like they'd taken the old hymn and just put new words. It did have a different tune.
0: 88, of course, as you mentioned, greatest, not just World Cup or European Championship song of all time, but probably the greatest song of all time, period. All the way, Stock Aiton and Waterman. Now, 1990, I've got every members 1990 because that was when, strangely enough, everything worked not only was it the official record that was endorsed by the fa but also it was quite good and that of course was Walden motion new order oh shut up no what, what do you mean it's a classic
1: it's just the way it was talked about as oh yeah finally the football song isn't embarrassing and i don't know that opinion got stated so much it became quite annoying whether it is true or not
0: no, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean, but 1990, you've got a lot of, you have a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. And because, I mean, I don't want to get all sort of serious, but 1980s football was associated a great deal with hooliganism and it wasn't really in vogue and the broadcasters were sort of falling out of favour with it. And the 1990 World Cup saw the start of a real renaissance that has lasted through to this day. I mean, in terms of its popularity with the wider Public and suddenly it became a sort of accepted thing along sort of amongst sort of middle class circles, and you had like Channel Four suddenly showing Italian football, and then Sky came along, 1992, bought up the Premier League, poured money into the game, and now of course you've then got family friendly stadia, and it is the, the huge money making engine that it is. It's just unstoppable, but. Until 1990 World Cup, yeah, football in Britain, and and I guess particularly England, it was sort of in the doldrums a little bit. So, yeah, that was sort of a turning point. But, yes, I know know what you mean. But, no, I would say say that World in Motion is is a good song. We don't have a World Cup song for 1994. More about World Cup 1994 later, folks. Euro 96, of course, we had...
1: I'm sorry, I'm just... You you went straight past 1990 without without mentioning "Watch Your House" featuring Paul McGraw with "Ooh Ah Paul McGraw."
0: <laughs> I remember the first time you ever said "Ooh Ah Paul McGrath to me, and my, I had to pick my jaw off the floor. I was absolutely stunned. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I thought, "Where the hell does this reference come from?" <laughs> Did you? Somebody did you download mentioned it, it once, and patch. then any
1: time I was making an effort, I made the note. Oh, ah! I always had to follow up with Paul McGrath even though I don't really know who Paul McGrath is. <laughs> I now know that he's an Irish, apparently, because it came out on Phonogram
0: Island. But it was just a name, and it just got <laughs> jammed in my head. Well, don't forget, of course, nowadays, because Paul McGrath isn't exactly topical nowadays, but nowadays you can obviously sing Ooh Ah Daily Star, say Ooh Ah Daily Star, oh, as yeah. famously used in their radio adverts. Now, Euro 96, everybody remembers Euro 96, the song Three Lions, video on Skinner and Ian Brody of Lightning Seeds.
1: Now, the interesting thing about Three Lions, in my mind, 1996 saw... So- We're pretty much at the height of Britpop. I think Britpop fell to pieces in 1997. I think OK Computer by Radiohead was like a watershed because it wasn't Britpop, it wasn't celebratory, and that was around about the time that comedy started to get noticeably grimmer. Not just The League of Gentlemen, but also what uh, Reeves and Mortimer were doing. Tom Fun and Derek is kind of a... There was a change in the mood of the nation. So 1996, though, so at the height of Britpop... The blossoming of the new lad movement. And yet, that song, which was, was held up so much, which you'd, you'd expect something, you know, maybe a bit Larry and a bit Chaz and Dave, with small faces. And yet, it is a Beach Boys song. It starts with a harpsichord ding, 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 that bouncy little rhythm. Very. And of course, there's a theremin solo in the middle. I know they have commentary bits over it but it's done in that wide-eyed sensitive southern california soft pop style very interesting i thought it was <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm gonna take your word for it because i know nothing of music i like music and i listen to music but i know nothing of it so you'd
1: admit that harpsichords playing a bounty rhythm was not really the sound of 1996. No, I, I agree with that, yes. Yeah, that's fair enough. It was like somebody that asked the High lamas to do the World Cup song. <laughs> Strangely out of step with time. And all the lyrics are all about, you know, being hurt and it's a really open-hearted, quite sensitive little song.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why they've managed to pull off that brilliant little trick of coming up with a chorus that people could chant on the terraces, which they did, and also... The song, yeah, the song does have meaning. And Frank Skinner and David Bidio at that time were associated with Fantasy Football League on BBC. And they were at the front of the crossover between football and comedy. And yeah, they came up with this song that just said what, I'm presuming, because obviously not being English, but I'm presuming what England fans had felt all these years, 30 years of hurt. And just seeing the team go out in... The most heartbreaking ways, penalty shootouts, and so on over the years, and of course, that's exactly how it ended in '96 as well. But 1998, ah, now I know the answer to this, and I knew it without looking it up. You know the answer to the, what's the official
1: FA yes. song for? Now- yes, I do. Right, okay, go on then. How does it feel to be on top of the world?
0: I'm stunned.
1: I just remember that at the time being, shit. Everybody, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, there was that. To
0: be fair, it actually got to number nine in the UK charts, but this time it was severely undone by unofficial songs. No, I
1: think one of the things of people going oh, Echo and the Bunny Men and the Spice Girls. That was the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Said yeah. a weird little shockwave, and then everybody. Have you heard it? Yeah. Can you remember how it goes? No. <laughs> People have forgotten what that song sounds like while they're listening to it.
0: <laughs> well, how does it feel, brackets, to be on top of the world? Like I say, it did make the top 10, but it was undone by a couple of unofficial songs that year. One of them was the official song of Euro 96, because Free Lines was re released as Free Lines 98, and the lyrics were rewritten to take into account how Euro 96 had ended. And again, that hit number one. Very, very close behind it was this bizarre... I mean, you were talking about how Three Lines has depth, has meaning. Fat Les with Finderloo has nothing! Finderloo is just... I imagine a lot of
1: people would think that that was the official song, though, because that was the one that was being constantly replayed. And that is more, I think, would have been slightly more in tune with 1996 than Three Lines was. And that's, that's the kind of thing you would have expected to be happening.
0: Well... Yeah, I mean, Vendaloo is such an oddity. The lyrics are funny, but there's there's nothing in it at all. There's nothing in it. And there's barely anything recognisable in terms of songwriting. But yeah, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant tune, and everybody can chant it because you don't need to know the words, so, so it's I'm truly an that, well. that there seems
1: to be an unofficial Scottish song in 1998 Long Shot by Teenage Fan Club. That's on this list I'm looking at—a football song.
0: No, I wasn't. I was not aware of this. I was not aware of this. But I'm just going to check the precise wording because we've got others into 2000. We've got "We're on the Ball" by Anton Deck, and then there's other things, and so on, so on, so on. The rest of them are in sort of in the 2000s, and not particularly.
1: Oh, uh, meat pie, sausage roll.
0: I'm looking it up. That's exactly what I was looking at right now. There it is. Granddad Roberts and his son Elvis. Meat pie, sausage roll. Come on, England. Giza ago now that's songwriting and what year was is this the way to the world cup oh god <laughs> well it's got to be after the we released amarillo surely so i am
1: glad to say that tony christie changed direction somewhat after that i did a fun interview with tony christie uh, some time ago and he said i like amarillo and I'm, I'm grateful for what it did to me but it's not what i'm about And this was at the time when he was promoting an album called Made in Sheffield, where he had Jarvis Cocker, people like that. Sheffield songwriters were writing stuff for him. He's done some fantastic stuff since Is This the Way to the World Cup.
0: Now's the Time is a particularly good song. You can beat Avenues and Alleyways. That's a classic. But anyway, we digress. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background to the World Cup in terms of broadcasting because I suspect part of the reason why the World Cup has the effect that it has on audiences in the UK is because it's on the protected event list. And actually, a few years ago, survived a challenge from FIFA and UEFA to try and change that, because they wanted to be able to sell to the highest bidder. Now, we're lucky here because you'll get to see every single game, all 64 games, on television in the UK as part of your licence fee. Whereas in some parts of the world, for example, in America, you'll need to have at least a sort of basic cable package to see ESPN, see a lot of the games. In the Middle East, you actually have to have a, a full-on sort of pay TV subscription for the month, which I think is priced at something like 120 US dollars to see. Oh, actually, the you say ESPN? Yes, indeed.
1: You know what? I think I could get the best seat in the house. Haha <laughs> yes. Is it it's worth mentioning? It's sport
0: related. It's
1: it's it's rare that I get to talk about something sport related.
0: <laughs> no, I actually no I, I was I was revisiting some old episodes of fantasy football from Euro two thousand and four the other day, and they had there a little item that was being plugged. Which actually could rival the ESPN screen in the booth for your attention, and what it was was a little gold mouth that you would install in a urinal, and it's got a ball there which is which is attached by string, and the idea is that yourself via your stream, so to speak, that that you try and score, get the ball in, in the back of the goal. And I mean, I've mean, i got to admit, I think this is a brilliant idea. I've never seen it. I've never seen it in any pub anywhere. But I'm rather surprised that this hasn't taken off. I would have thought there was just a, a standard part of the, the fittings and fixtures by now. I would have thought that Armaged Shanks themselves would produce them. <laughs> but anyway, so... So
1: in Anaheim, in Orange County in California, there's a very popular place called Disneyland. But if you don't want to pay the money to go into Disneyland, and it is expensive, there's a whole area around it called Downtown Disney, which is just shops and cafes and bars. And there happens to be a sports bar, a very lush sports bar called the ESPN Zone. And so they've just got screens everywhere playing all kinds of different games, and there's a massive screen playing some particular sport thing that's selected by somebody somewhere, presumably. But say you're watching your sport thing, And you're having your drink in the ESPN Zone bar, and you're thinking, I really have to go to the restroom, but I don't want to miss this game. Well, there are tiny screens above the urinals, trying to remember how to pronounce that the English way, or if you happen to be a speaker of American English, the urinals. And say you've had some of the spicy chicken wings. (laughs) Now, hang on! How, how, you how, you're not going to go to are you? Involved expulsion <laughs> in the cubicle set into the ceiling on a ramp at an angle is another little screen, so you can watch the television in the loo.
0: Now we need to get to the knob of the matter here. Okay, I'm going to put a question to you, Joe. Which I'm. I'm sorry. We're. We're not going to be able to answer this question. I'm going. I'm going to provide as much evidence as I can, but some of the great thinkers in history have tried to work this out, and nobody's ever really put the finger on it. But the question that we're going to ask today, and I apologise for the slightly fruity language, but it's got to be said, we've got to get to the bottom of why ITV's football coverage is shit. Now, I don't use that term loosely, and I'm not being dismissive. Because you're sort of thinking, oh, he's going to go on some sort of little talking head run as if he's doing like a a sort of rehearsal to appear on Dave or something like that. This is not nonsense I've come up with, okay? Everybody in the UK who's a football fan knows that people watch football on ITV when it isn't available anywhere else. And most games that are on ITV (laughs) are exclusive to themselves. For example, England home and away qualifiers for the next couple of international tournaments are all exclusive to ITV. Let me go all personal for a second and say that as a youth, I, of course, as you know, was very, very interested, and still am, in broadcasting and the little in and out bits and the bits around the programmes and so on. And I was always interested in sports coverage and I developed an affinity towards ITV Sport. Now, ITV Sport, for a long time, and to some extent still, has always suffered a little bit from snobbery, from BBC types. Because when ITV came along, of course, BBC was already established, and they were the broadcaster, and they, of course, had all the contracts. So if there was any sporting event on television, it was going to be on the BBC. So when World of Sport began in 1965, they had to scrabble about for whatever they could find. And, of course, they they then showed things that they could get hold of, like wrestling, of course, which we'll talk about in the podcast in a few weeks' time and they'd have, say, horse racing, and then they'd try and sort of buy in like bits and pieces from America, so you'd have sometimes just utterly absurd nonsense. You'd have things like tree felling. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Yeah, honestly, you'd have things like log rolling or cliff face diving, just just things like that. ITV Sport, for years and years and years, had this sort of down-market stigma as if, oh, that's just, you know, Commercial cobblers, and if you want proper sports coverage, you go to BBC, and this is a sort of the the David Coleman sort of approach. I mean, he said to Brian Moore the first time that he saw him in an FA Cup game, he said, "Oh, are you here looking for an audience?" Very sort of patronising, dismissive sort of way. And ITV has had to sort of fight and fight and fight in years gone by for the not just the attention of the audience, but the respect of the audience as well. And for a period in sort of nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. I was an absolute ITV sport devotee. If there was a game on and it was on both BBC and ITV, like the Cup Final for example, I'd always be on ITV. And I'm not entirely sure why, I suspect that I liked the personnel involved. Brian Moore as far as I was concerned was the best football commentator around. I still think that he's unmatched. And ITV's coverage was fun. With ITV's coverage, you'd get a sort of sense that they were sort of on your side, whereas the BBC's coverage was a little bit sort of straight laced and a bit stuffy and a bit establishment and what have you. I mean, for example, ITV's coverage invented the phenomenon of Jimmy Greaves' funny t shirts. Now, I'm not getting a reaction there. I would have thought that, oh, I thought you were going to say, of course, yes, I always wondered where that came from. But no. I'm not
1: aware of Jimmy Greaves' funny t shirts.
0: World Cup of '86. When you'd have Saint and Greasy presenting, for example, and in 1990 as well, there would be Saint, Ian St. John, in his suit and time, I'll have to look all smart, and there'd be Jimmy Greaves in his t shirt with. You meant you. Now, okay, now you're a fonts guy, so you know, like that font, that font that you always see on t shirts that have been made to order with somebody with a t shirt pressing machine you know what I mean? It's it's a sort of Cooper Black ish font, but yes. not quite.
1: Yes. Why did Cooper Black have that t-shirt market for so long?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's like that Playbill font in the letter set market because that was the one they always gave away. So yeah. So you'd always see yeah you'd see people with the t-shirts and the sort of Cooper Black ish font when they've had a bespoke. Saying made up. And there would be Jimmy Greaves, and he'd be sat there with some amusing little pun or saying in relation to that evening's game, and that's how ITV would open up their coverage. So, for example, say if England was playing Netherlands, Jimmy Greaves' t shirt would say something like, Green and Pleasant Hall Land. And that just sort of sets the tone for the overall approach that they're going to have. And I, yeah, I really, really liked ITV sport back in the day. I'll talk a little bit later about where it all started to go a bit sour. Why, for example, during an FA Cup game against Histon a few years ago, that Leeds United fans managed to get hold of a rogue microphone and start chanting, oh, ITV no. fucking shit! ITV fucking shit! This did actually happen. Just look it up on YouTube if you, if you want to see it. I'll give you some examples as to why ITV doesn't have a very good reputation amongst football fans. Despite all their sort of efforts in terms of trying to get the fans on side and trying to be inclusive and what have you. First of all, you've got the inherent problem that any commercial broadcaster's got in the UK, you've got commercial breaks. And that means that when it's end of the first half and then ITV's off in the first commercial break, the BBC is already getting down to their analysis of the game. So they've got that problem, but then again, Sky Sports is exactly the same, and they manage perfectly well. A problem, another problem of ITV is that they sometimes don't do themselves any favours with regard to how much attention they'll give a game and how much attention they'll pay to the cue dot in the corner of the screen because the adverts are coming on. For example, the conclusion to the 1989 season, Liverpool versus Arsenal, that ended with a last minute, genuinely a last minute goal. Arsenal snatched the title away from Liverpool, absolute pandemonium in the stadium and alongside the presenter Elton Wellesby of Granada is at the time the England football manager Bobby Robson. So you think well you're going to get some in-depth analysis here at least you're going to have the whole sort of doings explained to you what the hell happened and what have you and from memory the in-depth analysis was as follows. Elton Wellesby says well, Bobby, you uh, you must have seen uh, uh, quite a few finishes in your time, but uh, never anything quite like that, I guess. Well, anyway, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, that's the football season. See you next year. <laughs> Bye. And oh, seriously, seriously, that that is it. That 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 was it. Now nowadays, that would be two hours on Sky Sports. They'd have Hawkeye going, and they'd have every blade of grass analysed to see what part it played in the game. But things like that just don't do ITV any favours. It didn't do them any favours, of course, that in the last World Cup, they um, they promoted the adverts to a hell or two unusually prominent position within their coverage during the game. Now, they'd had a dry run for this new experimental feature in an FA Cup game in 2009 between Liverpool and Everton, which had gone to extra time, wasn't much of a game, and finally the goal came at the end of the match. And unfortunately, ITV's automated system kicked in just beforehand and started playing an advert for tic-tacs. And even Michael Grade, who was ITV at the time, said how annoyed he was as a viewer and this would not happen again. Except it did happen again. It happened in England's opening game in the World Cup. Steven Gerrard scores against the United States and HD viewers had an advert for Toyota and I was one hey. of them. And I, I was sat there watching the game with my friend Robbo and he said to me do you know sometimes I don't really think you're that interested in football, I think you just like it when things go wrong. That was the bit of the game where I was off my seat, I was over the moon, I was on the forums immediately looking at people's reactions to it and so on. Just things like that don't do ITV a lot of favours. And I haven't even come to the curse of ITV yet, nor have I mentioned 1994. I've got these in reserve for later on. This year, as always, we will have Half the games on BBC and half the games on ITV. Now, in 2010, the World Cup final on BBC One was watched by 15.1 million people. ITV's viewership was 3.3 million. And if you think that's a gulf, in 2012, the Euro 2012 final, BBC 10.1 million, ITV 1.7 million. The question is, why do ITV bother? And of course the answer is because they have a lot of games exclusively, so they don't have to go head-to-head against the BBC. I'd like to see the BBC just grow some grapefruits at some point and say, do you know what, we're not going to do the split this year, we're going to show all the games, and then just watch the colour drain from the ITV executives' faces.
1: Do you think that's really what would happen? Or do you think there'd be a certain, phew, well, that frees up a lot of space to show something else?
0: No, because ITV wouldn't bid for these tournaments if they didn't want to show them. They don't get these things granted to them. I mean, okay, they're in a privileged position because they're on the protected list, but they're still going to bid for the rights. They're still going to spend a lot of money on it. They bid on the basis that they're not going to go head-to-head with each other until, for example, the final, which is sort of traditional. But I believe ITV is going to have, I think it's 31 games exclusively over the course of the next month. And if you're in the UK, you don't have anywhere else to go. These things are not duplicated elsewhere on the satellite dial, for example. So it's worth a lot of money to them. But the thing is that the contract that the BBC and ITV have actually allows them to show what they want. They could both show all 64 games if they wanted to. I would love to see the BBC do that sometime. And I think that it's the fear of the political fallout from that which puts them off that. Because... I suspect, especially now, given that the charter is going to be renewed in 2016, I I don't think this is going to be a time for the BBC to want to make too many waves with their position and, and be seen as trying to quash a commercial rival. But there have been some people within BBC Sport over the years who have sort of said on the QT, internally, that they'd like to do that. And I think that perhaps, maybe one day it'll happen. It wasn't always like that, of course. That's what led to Tina Turner. What? (laughs) Okay, I want you to come with me on a little journey to the summer of 1990. Are we there yet? (sighs) I've got a soft spot for 1990. I've got to admit, I'm not ashamed to say this, even though perhaps I should be. 1990 was the year of Ness and Dormer. The World Cup was in Italy and it was all Pavarotti and what have you. Any time that I hear ITV's theme from that year, which was called Tutti al Mondo by Rod Argent, who'd written some other bits Ah. and pieces for ITV in the past. Seen him live. Have you? Yeah, he's in The Zombies. Oh!
1: I just hadn't said anything in the last couple of minutes. I just felt I needed to prove I was still here. (laughs)
0: Well, if ever I hear that theme from 1990, it almost makes me well up. I can remember running home from school which was a sort of 15 minute walk and I managed to run it in five minutes because I wanted to be home in time to see the beginning of ITV's World Cup coverage. If I was to attempt to do that now then I think that that would actually have the opposite effect. I think that it would probably prolong my journey by about four hours about three and a half of which would be me in the back of an ambulance. Honestly, 1990 World Cup great tournament everybody's got fond memories of it. Scotland you're going to be shocked here but Scotland got knocked out early on BBC and ITV sensationally failed to reach an agreement this time about the split of the games. And they both blamed each other and blah, 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 But anyway, the point was that they then showed all of the England games head-to-head for the rest of the tournament. Now, after the second round, STV, and I can remember this happening. It was Anne Diamond. Anne Diamond on TV Weekly. I don't know if it was some sort of box-ticking exercise, but TV Weekly was this little half-an-hour programme on a Thursday afternoon from TVS. It was Anne Diamond, and by today's standards it was pretty in-depth, because you had a nice little section from Barry Took every week, and he'd be looking at different bits and pieces of TV history. It was TV Weekly was the first time I ever saw anything to do with the franchises. I mean, the week that the new franchises were delivered in 1991, Barry Took showed the end of Southern TV from 81 on TV Weekly, and also made reference to Westward and ATV and so on. It was full of nice little gems like that, but anyway, was one Thursday afternoon, School holidays of course by this point, so kicking back. And Anne Diamond says, Oh, and some of you have been complaining that there's too much World Cup on the TV, and I'm thinking, for fuck's sake, every time. It's four bloody weeks every four years. Get over it. Now, I wanna get your reaction to this first of all, and then I'll give you my reaction. I'm gonna be Anne Diamond, okay? I'm not gonna try and do the voice because I couldn't. But she said, Oh, some of you have been complaining that there's too much football on with what with the World Cup and all that. But There is actually uh, one alternative. STV in Scotland are going to be opting out of the World Cup this weekend, and they're going to have a selection of drama. Sounds good. Right. So that's your reaction, is it? Sounds good. Take the high
1: road. Uh, That thing with Molly Weir. Charlie Ender, Esquire. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect when I actually tell you what they put out, you're going to be disappointed. But anyway, okay, so that's your reaction. So you're sort of thinking, oh, because you'd be down in Yorkshire. YTV land, so you'd be thinking, oh, if only I could get STV or whatever that'd be, that'd be lovely, a lovely nice wee alternative, right? I cannot begin to tell you what my reaction was like. I mean, I must have been an absolute bloody nightmare as a 12-year-old, pain in the arse, just running around the family home, just telling anybody who didn't really want to listen because they weren't interested, that Ann Diamond's has just told me that STV have cancelled... Their coverage of the World Cup. What the hell are you talking about? This isn't allowed. There's going to be a rule against this. I've got a funny feeling that I actually wrote and complained to Scottish television. First of all, I'm going to tell you what their weekend of drama consisted of. You're thinking perhaps that maybe they'll show Geraldine McEwen in the prime of Miss Jean Brody hasn't been on for a few years. Maybe they'll show something like that. Or, I don't it doesn't have to be STV. They could show some classic from the ITV archives. could be like Winston Churchill played by Robert Hardy, maybe something like that. Bride's Revisited, or The Jewel in the Crown. could be any number of things. Well, here's what happened. On the Saturday evening, whilst Italy beat Ireland
1: 1-0... Spoilers!
0: STV was showing the Tom Hanks and Dalhanna film Splash.
1: <laughs> yes, the great drama...
0: <laughs> I'll come back to Sunday in a second because that's the key bit about this. I don't even know what the hell this is. Tuesday night, they were showing a film called Madam X. Do I need to go off and check our secret source to find out what the hell that is? Because is? I'm know. almost afraid to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's probably the
1: 1966 film, Madam X. Popped into my head, Madam X, that's a 20s film. And there was a 1929 version, but apparently there was a 1966 as well as a 1937 remake. And I'm going to say that they're probably showing the 1966 version. That would have been fantastic if, oh, come on, let's show some vintage pre-code early talkies with Lionel Barrymore. No,
0: that would, have, that, that I would have liked. But this is obviously some little old tat that they've just panned and scanned and shoved on because they're in the huff because we got beaten by Costa Rica. On the Saturday night, when they ran Splash, that worked out fine. Italy beat Ireland 1-0 in normal time. I think you can see where I'm going with this. On the Sunday night, England are playing Cameroon. Classic game. It was on BBC and on ITV across the UK, except in STV land. Now, we got the sequel to Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand, Funny Lady, from 1975. I suppose that's a drama. I suppose you can say that sort of fits the bill. Except STV have been a bit too cocky. It went so well on the Saturday night that they didn't actually plan for the possibility of extra time in the England-Cameron game, which is what happened. Now, memory can be faulty, and I know that people sometimes go into forums and absolutely swear blind that they saw this and this is exactly how it was, and then somebody will come along and completely contradict that with exactly the same certainty. But I'm telling you, I was watching it on the night, and I'm flicking back and forward, and I'm thinking, oh, hey, game's going to extra time. That means STP are going to have to fill in, because the next thing coming on after the football is the ITN news. There wasn't any ITN news. Not until the England game's finished. They don't just bring it out especially for STV viewers and it would have been like whoever the continuity guy would have been at the time like Nicky Doherty or Brian Ford or whoever and I'm thinking they're going to run something for half an hour because the extra time lasts for half an hour so they're going to put a half an hour program on and for whatever bloody reason they didn't. They had the guy sat there and he's reading bits and pieces out the TV times and then they start playing music videos. Suddenly turned turn into STV Music Box. The only hey. one I can remember specifically was Tina Turner. Then they would play the video and it would go back to the continuity announcer who's sweating profusely and doesn't want to admit that the reason that the ITN news isn't on is because STV's opted out the bloody game. So they're having a pad and pad and pad, and thankfully for them, by the Wednesday when England then played West Germany, and that game didn't just go to extra time with penalties.
1: So I'm guessing that it wasn't Tony Curry because he wouldn't have broken a sweat.
0: No he no he certainly would he certainly wouldn't have. Tony but... Curry
1: who apparently did forty five minutes solo. <laughs> The continuity announcement. I can't remember the full story behind that. I'll have to look that up sometime. I, as I understand
0: it, it was a watchmate service that was coming from a particular church and they had like a sort of makeshift OB unit. and Within a few minutes of the service beginning, they lost contact with the OB unit and I think it was bad weather, like storm conditions. And they realized shortly thereafter they were not going to get this service back on the air. And so, yeah, Curry had to to find his own show for 45 minutes. I think that's
1: one of the number one things that's unlikely to exist that I would really like to see.
0: Well, I've got that box of Max tapes next door. I'll be looking at it later in the summer, after the walk-up. I'll let you know if I find it. Okay, being the precocious little shit that I was and having already written to STV to complain and actually expecting, at the very least, a handwritten reply from the head of programming, if not actually a visit at the door, I'm sitting there with a smile on my face akin to... When Stephen Twig defeated Michael Portillo, and I'm thinking, you buggers, you had that coming. Ha! Why do you didn't See, know that? no, I wasn't going to do John Stapleton. I'm sitting there thinking, you buggers had that coming, right? How dare you opt out of football coverage? Do you not know this is a national sport? And yes, maybe there's a few odd people out there who aren't interested in England versus Cameroon, but that's their bloody problem. Watch whatever the hell's on Channel Four, or read a book or something or similar alien concept to me. To give them their credit, STV have never ever attempted to opt out of the World Cup or the Euros since. Despite the fact that since 1998, like I say, Scotland hasn't been there. But I'm glad that they learned their lesson and I'd like to think that in some small way that my letter to them played its own little part.
1: I'm curious about the one thing I remember I've dug out an old TV times to look at while you were talking there the one thing that the World Cup always meant to me was pattern A and pattern B in the listings magazines and I've just looked at one now. Was British television really that parochial? It says here, depending on how the qualifiers go, we'll go with this. This schedule, which has World Cup in it or this schedule, which has no World Cup in it. So is it really a case if we're fingering on playing this night, we're not going to bother? Well, not quite. Was that the case? Was that how pattern
0: A and pattern B worked? No, what's going on there is that at that time, BBC and ITV between them, after the draw was made in December, BBC and ITV get together and they would then split the first round games between them. Because by the time you've got pattern A and B in TV times, the broadcasters have actually listened to that tiny, tiny, minuscule minority of people who don't want to have the same football game on both mainstream channels, which I just cannot even begin to understand. But anyway, there's a few people out there like that. So, they then started to divvy up the games so that they weren't duplicating them and then what they would do is depending on how the results went in the first round they'd then get back together again and then renegotiate for the second round and the quarterfinals and, and so on now nowadays they actually do that in a single block so all of that has already been done for 2014 meaning there's no need for pattern a or b but back then yeah, that's what it indicates, is to say, if ITV has done well in the negotiations, we'll be showing an England game tonight. If we've done badly, it's going to be a repeat of the return of the Saint. I'll tell you that one is a bit of an oddity. There have been occasions with this pattern A, pattern B business, when some rarities have found their way onto the screen. For example, during Euro 96, I believe they still had pattern A and pattern B going all at the time, and... Bear in mind, this is the summer of 1996. ITV suddenly puts out It'll Be Alright on the Night 4 from 1984. And it's full of outtakes from punchlines and crossroads and things like this. I remember being rather surprised at this and thinking, wow, where's that come from? And then Euro 2000, they had a repeat of an audience with Kenneth Williams at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. That didn't even go out on ITV originally. That was actually a Channel 4 broadcast. So you do get some funny turns, you get some odd business, and of course, 1982, if you want to delve into your Chocobot computer there, have a look at anything from June of 1982, ITV had a nice way of being able to mask this whole business. They created this Best of British series, which was ITV code for repeats repeats of ITV programs.
1: Yeah, I think they showed an episode of The Prisoner and they showed a really, really non-representative episode of The Prisoner. They showed the anti-penultimate episode, which is getting to the point where, oh, how the hell do we fill out this series? (laughs) Oh, let's have a fantasy episode that doesn't take place in the village. And that was the one they decided to show. And because they cleared that for a repeat, when TV Heaven with Frank Muir comes... (laughs) <laughs> it's like let's show an episode of the prisoner which one's been cleared recently <laughs> this one
0: <laughs> i think there was stuff like upstairs downstairs was in there and they would have had i think it was a repeat of the eighty month previous mark and wise christmas show and probably on the on the buses was in there i've seen uh, there are trailers for this in circulation kicking about it's all very Way, well, hey, we've got this fantastic season. But it sort of fits into that narrative that you had around about that time, which was the whole country's divided into two different camps. There are people who like the World Cup and there are people who like everything else. And for some reason, they, they don't overlap. And so that that's how they sort of portray it. I mean, everyone's favourite defunct cable channel, Carlton Select, famously said, June and July were a football-free zone. Like they usually were the other bloody 12 months. <laughs> but 1978, nowadays this would have the tag of everyday sexism, but the trailers for ITV's World Cup in 78 are actually split along the sexes male presenter saying, well hey, look we've got Scotland versus Iran and there's Brazil and and fantastic, lots of World Cup, brilliant football. The female presenter comes on and says, but don't worry if you don't like the football because we've got lots of other things coming on. (laughs) And it's pretty blatant in terms of demarcation. That would definitely raise eyebrows now.
1: Didn't the World Cup being televised change the design of footballs? That black and white hexagon thing, isn't that a legacy of televised World Cup coverage?
0: It's gone through a few different stages. I mean, you've still got what you call the sort of traditional ball being used in 66. Yes, it is true that when you've then moved into colour TV era, then you've had to then sort of account for two different types of viewer. So... Experiments took place with different colours of balls. Famously in Australia in the late 1970s with World Series cricket, which was a commercial competitor to the straightforward test matches, they had to experiment with different colours of cricket ball because they had to choose one that was just right for the floodlights and didn't have a lot of glare. And so a red ball, they felt, wasn't clear enough on the screen, whereas a white ball had too much of a shadow following it on the screen when it was thrown. And eventually they chose this sort of fluorescent yellow ball that was just right. It it did exactly the job that they wanted. Yeah, the black and white ball, of course, is very easy on the eye, but as time has gone on, the actual shape of the ball itself has changed a good deal because now you get the football, which is more aerodynamic, and also, of course, you have the addition of the sponsors, sort of logos on them and so on, which is more prevalent these days in, in the era of HD.
1: And the red and yellow cards, isn't that a hangover from the World Cup?
0: Well, I'll need to go over to the chocolate block computer to check that once more, and the answer is provided is that, indeed, the yellow and red cards were introduced in the 1970 World Cup, and so the story goes. They were the idea of the English referee Ken Aston because he had sent off a player from Argentina during the '66 World Cup in England, and there was some sort of confusion over the dismissal, and he had to persuade the player to actually leave the field. And so then he came up with this idea of the yellow and red cards. It was trialed at the '70 World Cup in Mexico, and then gradually it was introduced by the different European leagues. After that, so surprised to think actually that's only. 44 years old. Okay, are we going to talk about the elephant in the room?
1: Would this be the curse of ITV?
0: No, it was actually well Elephant.
1: Oh, hey! <laughs> well whose Matches, Matches, Never Touch, They Can Hurt You Very Much film was one shown, on, I think it was after a Hale and Pace show, about half past ten on a Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's never left me that memory.
0: My only memory of well elephant is seeing someone in a well elephant costume on You've Been Framed who tripped and his well elephant head went flying off. And when I mean when I say flying off, I don't just mean it came loose. I mean it catapulted, like several feet away, and left the audience in no doubt that they had been duped all along by this big red elephant, and he was not all he appeared to be. Now the elephant in the room is a curse of ITV. This is a theory which took hold around about 10 years ago. If you want to look this up, various bits and pieces online, but there is one authoritative source on the matter. If you Google film detail as one word, and then curse of ITV, you'll come across a very interesting blog post from 2010, which has subsequently been updated. And they've gone through all of the World Cups that have been televised by both BBC and ITV. And they've sort of awarded them points based upon how well England have done when they've been on BBC or ITV or both, and tallied it up and so on. And the basic gist of this is that England do badly when their games are on ITV, and particularly when they're exclusively on ITV. I won't spoil the outcome of their research. So like I say, if you want to have a look at this yourself, You'll see on the blog post, they've actually tallied it up and given it a final score and so on. But here are a few examples of the supposed curse. Even a non-sports fan like yourself, Ocho, you know of the legend of 66, Bobby Moore. What,
1: that they won? Yes, basically. I didn't know if there was another legend.
0: <laughs> no, we're not...
1: Is it the story that the night before the manager took the team out to watch those magnificent men in their flying machine? <laughs>
0: No, I'm not aware of that. It's a great way th- <laughs> That is brilliant. I'm not aware of that. I've not heard that story. One story that I have heard, which I think has been verified by the manager at the time, a chap called Bobby Gould, is that when Wimbledon, who were severe underdogs, played Liverpool in the FA Cup final of 88, Liverpool were like the team polished professionals, you know, club ethos, this is Anfield sign as you went into the stadium and what have you. They were the real deal. And Wimbledon were sort of seen as ragbag of just semi-professional, semi-amateur players, didn't have a lot of grace, a bit too keen on going in with the harsh tackle and what have you. And the night before the cup final, so the story goes, some of the players said to the manager look, we're getting a bit bored at this hotel can we can we do anything? And Bobby Gold just gave him 100 quid and said go down the pub, have a couple of drinks, don't get too hammered and, and, and there you are. This is unthinkable, the idea that, that would have happened in the Liverpool team, they would have presumably been training and eating the correct things like lettuce and working with the sports psychologist. The idea that they just go down the pub and don't have too many doesn't really occur. And of course, Wimbledon won. Okay, but sorry. anyway,
1: can, can I take a massive, massive non spot related tangent? You've just reminded me of something. I think it involves the band Big Country and their first appearance on top of the Pops. Their manager had said, go out and get your hair cut. Get a really good haircut. Go out into London and I will pay you. Re- I'll reimburse you the money, but you got to look stylish on top of the Pops. So they all had to think about, that. let's cut each other's hair. And then tell him that it cost us 80 quid to have our hair cut and he'll give us 80 quid
0: <laughs>
1: yeah fantastic so they did it this is how the entertainment industry works they turned up there and said, yeah no okay fine not bad I suppose you know what you're doing how how much should that cost 80 quid 80 quid oh these salons they just, oh, take the mix sometimes okay there's 80 quid there's 80 quid for you there's 80 quid for you <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do hope that story's true. <laughs> so, you okay, you know the story of 66. Alf Ramsey, Bobby Moore, lifting the trophy, getting the trophy from the Queen, lifting at Wembley Stadium, where hey. And then 70, back home, 70, go to Mexico. Alas, they lose. This is absolutely true. I'm not saying it to be coarse. Gordon Banks was indisposed. Couldn't leave the bathroom. Because, no, this is absolutely this is a true story. Gordon Banks is the, the, the keeper, and Alf Ramsey had said to the England team it is the name of a sitcom don't drink the water but it's true they said don't drink the local water because it's not clean enough, I mean you're going to get a bug and they had their own water supply that they took to Mexico with them but Gordon Banks supposedly had some ice cubes in his drink that were from the local water supply and he got the 100 meter dash and so he couldn't play in this match against West Germany and relief keeper Peter Bonetti went in and Gordon Banks was stuck at the hotel and was watching the game on the local TV and England went 2-0 up but the game on the local TV was delayed by about an hour whilst he's watching them 2-0 up the team come back in <laughs> with you know the faces on the ground and he says what happened? And of course they'd lost 3-2. Nevertheless, people still sort of thinking, 74, you'll make a great comeback and what have you. 1973, England play Poland in a World Cup qualifier. They draw one all. England are not going to the World Cup of 1974. This is unthinkable. Alf Ramsey, Sir Alf Ramsey, is later to be relieved of his post as England manager. Again, the unthinkables happened. And guess who was showing that game that night? For some bizarre reason it wasn't the BBC, safe pair of hands, tried and trusted. No, they'd given it to those upstarts at ITV and look what's happened! The ITV have ruined the World Cup for everybody! Okay, you can think, okay, well that's a one-off. Can't blame them for that. 1993, Graham Taylor, the famous film that was made by Channel 4 for Cutting Edge Strand, where he came up with the phrase, do I not like that? It was a away qualifier Against Holland, they lose 2-0. England are not going to the World Cup in 1994. More about 1994 later, folks. Again, the curse of ITV strikes. Now, there are other instances. ITV showing a game which... England failed to qualify for 78. They showed that game against Italy. They showed their game against Spain in 82, which showed them crash out of the World Cup. These are all exclusive to ITV. There's no BBC involvement in any of these. 1998, one of the highest audiences ever for a football match in the UK, England versus Argentina in the World Cup of 1998 in France. Beckham famously retaliates against the player, gets sent off, England go out in penalties. Now, I mentioned before that my favourite Football commentator of all time was and is Brian Moore. And he actually admitted later on that he'd said this and wished that he hadn't said it. And he'd said it purely because a penalty was about to be taken by this player called David Batty. He said to Kevin Keegan next to him in the commentary box about David Batty and whether he was going to score this penalty. Can he do it? Quickly, yes or no? And Kevin Keegan said, yes. Of course, David Batty missed. And you actually, if you listen carefully, you can hear Kevin Keegan saying do He really does. He does he, honestly, he does a homer. Just on a side issue on this particular subject, Jim White writing in The Guardian said that that evening somebody had phoned Sky Sports and suggested that David Beckham should face trial for treason. You can see then that this idea has taken hold over the years that if the games end up on ITV that they're going to go out. Like I said, I'm not going to spoil the result of that statistical analysis that's been done on that blog. Have a look at it. But the blog does actually say a superstition is easier to understand than the very deep problems that afflict England at international level. As it happens, England are on the BBC once in the group stage and twice on ITV. So while they actually get to the second round, is dependent on this supposed curse. So we're going to have to see just how this transpires but are you somebody who puts a lot of stock in this idea do you believe in the idea that in some way this could happen i mean if you if you even hear the word curse then straight away do you give it credence or do you think oh that's
1: bullshit if i hear the word curse i immediately think in a sporting context i think of baseball because that does seem to be the superstitious sport and i can't remember it's I did go through a period of watching baseball immediately before I left the UK, not actually when I got here. But for a while, the hours I kept, I was up late and I would watch baseball on Channel 5. So I did develop a bit of an interest, but I'm afraid that since moving to the US, I don't think I have watched a single game all the way through.
0: You know, that makes no sense at all. No, it doesn't. I know. Yeah.
1: And so as a result, I can't even remember which stadium it was. One of the stadiums was being rebuilt. I have a feeling it was in New York. Somebody involved in the building had put a rival team's shirt into the cement to (laughs) curse the earth upon which this stadium was built. And there was the whole thing of the, the curse that prevented the Red Sox from winning the World Series for decades on end and some sign in boston that was like reverse curve or some traffic sign and somebody had changed it so it said reverse the curse baseball is that kind of game
0: from the guardian washington reporter monday the 14th of april 2008 new york yankees unearthed jersey to ease fears of baseball curse yes
1: they, yeah, i mean they must have paid thousands and thousands of dollars
0: to have it removed Weary of a curse on their new $800 million baseball park, the New York Yankees yesterday dug up a shirt of their arch-rival Boston Red Sox. says here the shirt was buried two feet below the surface behind home plate by Red Sox fan Gino Castanoli, who told the New York Post he took a job at the site just to jinx that stadium and worked only a single day. (laughs) Yeah, and there are other ones, of course. There is famously the curse of the Billy Goat. Trying to remember which team that was. I think it was the Chicago Cubs. And Billy Goat Tavern owner Billy Cyanus was asked to leave a World Series game against the Detroit Tigers at the Cubs' home ballpark in Wrigley Field because his pet goat's odour was bothering other fans. This is 1945. He was outraged and declared, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more and the Cubs have not won a National League pennant since this incident, and have not won a World Series since 1908. So, we'll put so this to the test. I'm I, not I just...
1: saying that in every stadium in which England have played World Cup games, there has been an STV copy of the TV Times snuck into the foundation somehow, but can't rule it out as a possibility.
0: <laughs> well, I haven't got round to all the stadiums yet. <laughs> we will keep an eye on the course of ITV throughout the next month, and hopefully that blog May well be updated with the extra analysis.
1: I have a couple of things to mention. I went to the fantastic website TV arc thinking that I might find more things to talk about by looking at the opening titles. The most exciting thing was the dual branding of the Eurovision slide on the 1966 World Cup, BBC and ITV. A very rare ITV appearance on that Eurovision spangly Stars and lines going everywhere slide.
0: Yeah, it's. With and
1: playing underneath, fantastic.
0: You don't really associate ITV with Eurovision, do you?
1: I think they and Channel 4 since 1982 have thrown in together with a contribution to Eurovision. Because there there, must be certain things where they benefit. It's worth being in the union. It's a shame that this recess didn't come early. We should have done some sort of Eurovision Song Contest special.
0: We should do it live next year.
1: Including explaining why. Because every year people on Twitter go, Israel's not in Europe. Well, there is a reason why Israel is in the contest. <laughs> and it only takes ten seconds Googling to find out why. The difference between Europe... Because occasionally this... Non-existent entity, the European Song Contest, suddenly comes into existence when you hear people complaining. But it's the European Song Contest! No it isn't! <laughs> it's is the Eurovision Song Contest, it is the European Broadcasting Union which is decided by the boundaries of the European Broadcasting Zone which apparently was originally decided by the boundaries that could be reached by telegraph wires. It just so happens that Israel and I think Iran and Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries are actually part of the European Broadcasting Union because of wires.
0: It is actually really weird that you mention EBU because in front of me I have a note about the EBU and the role that they played in... It wasn't actually the World Cup, it was the European Championships in 2000. At that time, the EBU sold on the radio rights to these tournaments to their members, which would include BBC and also at that time included Capital Radio representing the ILR stations. Talk Radio had just rebranded as Talk Sport earlier that year. And of course you're thinking, Sports Station? Of course it's going to have Euro 2000 coverage, why wouldn't they? But because they weren't part of the EBU, they were barred from bidding for the tournament. So they came up with a novel approach as to how to cover it. They just went ahead and did it. Anyway Oh no and this is a serious request, right? If anybody, even if you only got like ten minutes of it recorded, anybody's got any recordings of TalkSport during Euro two thousand, please let us know. Tweet us at the sitcom club or email us feedback at sitcomclub.com. Because I did hear bits and pieces of talk sports coverage in that tournament, but I wasn't aware of what was going on until later, and of course as I'll explain later on, it wasn't quite the same. Talk Sport are covering Euro 2000. And there they are, they're commentating on the game. We've got Alan Parry, stalwart commentator for BBC and ITV back in the day. He's commentating from Holland where the tournament's taking place and so on. And this is obviously getting on BBC and Capitals Wick because they've paid a hell of a lot of money for this. BBC ended up taking Toxport to court and getting a ruling on this to see whether TalkSport was in breach of some sort of broadcasting rule. And that's when all the sordid of details came out. TalkSport, where in Holland? but they were not at the games. Alan Parry and his fellow commentators were... This is is absolutely true, I made this up, right? They were commentating in front of a TV screen and they were located in a venue called the Jolly Hotel in Amsterdam. The reason that I really, really want to hear some of this commentary is that after the legal action they were obliged to spell out very, very clearly, this is unofficial commentary, it's off-tube commentary as it's referred to, we are commentating whilst watching TV screens, and also all the audio is fake. So (laughs) they don't have have any audio from inside the stadium at all, so all the crowd noises, even things like the referee blowing his whistle, everything, even the national anthems, it's all phony. And To be fair, they actually did a pretty good job of it. I mean, after a few minutes, you sort of forget that's what you're listening to. It doesn't sound as bad as it sounds when you describe it. What I want to hear is, what was it like in the first week or so? when they were trying to get away with this. Were they actually saying, Well there's a lovely cooling breeze here at the Amsterdam arena and and there's a lovely ticker tape parade. Oh, I've just got some of my hair there. And I'll be going off to get a bottle and pie at half time. What's what's the queue like over there? I, I honestly I'd love to hear that because nowadays I mean it still happens occasionally, not with talk sport, but it happens with fellow broadcasters. And yeah they have to sort of spell it out. But I really admire the utter barefaced brass neck cheek of it. Did they have anybody knock on the door? Did they have room service arrive halfway through a commentary? Did they have the fire alarm go off and they had to go into the car park? Hopefully they could try and still see the screen from three floors down. I mean, just so many questions unanswered. To conclude, and I hope that our conversation today has been valuable to you if you are, for example, considering the likelihood of the country that you got in your office sweepstake making the finals. Or if you are debating the merits of the various systems such as four four two. I don't actually remember discussing any of that, but maybe it happened, I don't know. Maybe Won't well, only
1: be shown in sixteen by nine.
0: Oh blow. We could not finish before we've spoken about the greatest event in the entire history, not just of the World Cup, but I don't want to overstate it, but I would say actually the greatest event in the history of Western civilization. And that is, of course, ITV's coverage of the World Cup of 1994. We mentioned earlier on that ITV was the reason that England didn't go to the World Cup in 1994 because they broadcast Holland versus England, which they lost 2-0. Now, thankfully, the Republic of Ireland have not let the side down and they are at the World Cup finals managed by former England international Jack Charlton. Scotland weren't there either, but we won't worry about that. Nevertheless, not taking a pro attitude, BBC and ITV still covered the World Cup in 1994 and split the matches accordingly. They didn't go head to head apart in the final. But ITV's coverage was a thing of beauty. It was something special. It was. I sent something in your direction a few weeks ago, Joe. I sent you some BBC training videos from a few years ago, and they were full of all these handy tips about how to make good television. I think that you could probably get some mileage out of sending potential sportscasters and broadcasters' tapes of the ITV World Cup coverage of 1994 and saying, just do the precise opposite to everything that's on the screen here. And you're laughing. If you think I'm overstating this case, I'm going to give you a few examples. First of all, before the tournament begins, you get a relatively new presenter. In this case, it was Matthew Lorenzo. And you announce at a press conference that Matthew Lorenzo is the new Lynam. No prizes for guessing that it was Carlton who were behind that particular stunt. So straight away, okay, you've just given your main anchor a massive handicap. To be fair to Matthew Lorenzo, he's a perfectly good host, and he was unfairly criticised, I think, during the tournament. But if you're going to bill somebody in that manner, then you know how it's going to end. Because Des, by this point, is already a national institution. And... People feel at ease with him. He's Des Lyon, for goodness sake. So, just billing somebody as that is just absurd. Now, BBC decided no home nations there. Also, it's in the USA as well. 1994 World Cup. Let's stop in England. We'll stay at home, broadcast from Television Centre, and there you are. And then Des and the team went out to the USA for the final. Now, traditionally there are a couple of ways of broadcasters covering the World Cup. One is exactly like that, to stage your main presentation at home and then send out your commentators and your reporters to the stadium, or the jolly hotel if it's talk sport. Brian Moore, for example, I mentioned before, at ITV, he always fought for exactly that outcome. He always argued his case that ITV should anchor the coverage from London because, obviously, pre-internet days and so on, that meant that they had a much better feel for what their audience was interested in. They could pick up the vibe of what the people in England were actually discussing, what bits of the tournament were of interest to them. Whereas if they were stationed out in Mexico or Germany or wherever it was, then they'd be a little bit cut off. ITV, therefore, did anchor from London right up until 1994. Now, sometimes, nowadays, you tend to get the broadcasters actually locate themselves at the stadiums or in the country throughout, like they will do in Brazil in, what is it now, 32 hours' time. Occasionally, like technical reasons will get in the way, like 2002, for example, South Korea, Japan, a lot of the coverage came from London, then they flew out for the finals and so on. But by and large, these days, that's what happens. ITV in 1994 managed to come up with a unique hybrid, which nobody (laughs) has ever attempted to restage. They went to... All the trouble of going to the United States, leaving Dez and Jimmy Hill and Alan Hansen and the BBC behind at Television Centre, nope, ITV went right into the heart of the action in the US. The only problem was that you wouldn't have known that it was the US, except for that little bit on the screen which said Dallas. I'm going to quote from Brian Moore's very fine autobiography, final score. ITV made a dog's breakfast of it by doing neither <laughs> one thing nor the other. The programmes came from a dungeon-like studio in Dallas that had neither the visual, vibrant excitement of the stadium, nor the comforts of home. The panel were far removed from the action and looked, and probably were, bored. These truly were ITV's darkest sporting days. The studio didn't even have any windows in it. I mean, it might as well have been in Stockport, or Barrow in Furnace, or Pit Lockery. And the other thing that I can't get my head around as well, they're in Dallas, but I've I've got footage from that World Cup, and all the pictures from the studio are in PAL. So they must have gone to Dallas and had to then, what, what did they do? Did they take all their own equipment over there, or did they have to hire in PAL standard equipment in the US? And then how the hell did they get that back to London without it becoming some god awful, garbled NTSC converted to PAL mess? Because it isn't, it is PAL, but that must have cost an absolute bloody bomb. I mean, you think you might, you know, if you want to be in the heart of the action, then bugger the extra hundred lines. <laughs> but anyway, I can put it better than Brian Moore, but I just wanted to throw in this as well, because I heard this on a podcast earlier on today, and I loved this expression so much. I thought, no, it's so perfect for this situation. This is a pro wrestling manager called Kevin Sullivan, who used this in relation to something else. But I think this would actually sum up ITV's studio-based coverage so well. The atmosphere was worse than if you'd gone to your in-laws for Thanksgiving dinner and kicked their grandmother in the face. <laughs> so, we're in a studio which has no windows and no view of the US and is stuck in one particular city, whereas, of course, the walk-ups are taking place everywhere. Secondly, you've got your lineup of pundits. And whereas, for example, on BBC, you've got Alan Hansen who at that time, and arguably still is, the best pundit in the business. He's just about to retire from BBC. Alongside Andy Gray, you probably see he's the best tactical analyst there is. And of course, BBC's got Jimmy Hill as well, who initially famously created the panel that we now know from basically televised football. He created the panel for ITV's coverage in 1970, and then the BBC copied it four years later. You've got Jimmy Hill alongside Alan Hansen. So you've got a nice recognisable little trio for the Beeb. Amongst ITV's analysts was Don Howe, who at that time was the assistant coach for England, whereas the actual England manager, Terry Venables, he was over at the Beeb. The whole point of analysis on televised football is that it's supposed to educate yourself as a viewer to the bits and pieces that you would have missed. We talked about the in-depth analytical skills of Elton Wellesby earlier on. <laughs> now, not everybody can be as good as him, but... The whole point is that you're supposed to explain things that you, the common viewer, don't necessarily pick up on. Don Howe managed to analyse Fry TV throughout the whole of the World Cup and not actually add any information of any importance or relevance at any point. For example, I've actually I've, I've got specific quotation in front of me down here. He's asked by Mafia Lorenzo, should we write off the Argentinians in this tournament because they've just suffered a heavy loss pre-tournament. His answer is, no, you cannot, no. I think anyone who knows football, yeah. I mean, they weren't the most entertaining side in the last World Cup and they got a lot of criticism, but they can, they have, in the game, got some outstanding players with a lot of individual talent. Now, in terms of football analysis, that's the same sort of level that you would get if you were to switch on a vacuum cleaner and just listen to the dull noise for about sort of 15 seconds or so. Coupled with this, ITV have chosen their first picks in the tournament early on. So they're left with all the Duff matches later. And as if that wasn't enough, whereas BBC had that wonderful piece by Leonard Bernstein from West Side Story, America, I Like To Be In America. That's their theme for 1994. Which is a very ITV sarcastic have... song. Well, yes, but it is a nice song. It's, it's very cheery. ITV have gone with the official anthem of the USA World Cup of 1994, which is called Gloryland. Now, I'm no singer, as you know, but just to put this into context, I'm going to try and sing you a little bit of Gloryland, okay? So, bear with me, because...
1: Do you want me to put a little bit of, you know, give you a little bit of the old Phil
0: Spector? Yes, okay, let's do that. Yeah, I wasn't sure what you meant there. No, okay, right, in musical terms. This is by Hall & Oates. Gloryland. This is a big theme for USA 94, okay? Gloryland. In glory land, you're here, in glory land. It started with a feeling, and a dream was born in you. You hope and pray that come the day, you'll see that dream come true. Now that's just a little bit of Hall Notes, Glory Land. Official theme of the 1994 World Cup. Now even though I've read and slashed and inverted sung a little bit of it there, Whenever I hear it, I don't know if it's just like some sort of maybe hearing deficiency that I've got. It might be like tinnitus or something like that. What you heard there, I hear is wank. that's, That's all I can hear just throughout the whole thing. And the reason that I can just hear wank is because ITV used that bloody theme at the beginning of every program, at the end of every program, and going into and out of all the commercial breaks. And it was part of their sponsorship deal with Panasonic. Great shots of the World Cup with Panasonic. And they had this awful sort of heart-tugging business with the kids with all the painted faces with all the different nationalities. Oh my God, it was horrible. And I can remember every bloody line of that song. I mean, the number of times I had that bloody thing drilled into my brain, like 16 times. You know how bloody many adverts I had to be taken in the course of three hours... So I would have heard that song about 16 times per game and they probably showed about 32 games over the month. The upshot of all this is that you'd think that I would just be sort of running screaming from this and I would take refuge with the BBC and stick with them. But actually, for some perverse reason, I stayed with ITV. I watched ITV through the World Cup. I actually watched ITV during the final when I actually had a choice of watching the BBC as well. BBC had 13 million viewers for the final and ITV, 5 million. And there was considerable fallout from this. ITV signed Bob Wilson, ex-Arsenal goalkeeper turned broadcaster, to be their main host immediately afterwards and to try and sort of strengthen their output because they took so much flack from the viewers for that World Cup. And I don't think, I mean, unless Adrian Trials actually drops his trousers and just lays a cable on the pitch in Rio like like tomorrow evening, I don't think that ITV could do a worse job now than they did in 1994. And for that reason I would love to have every single second of that coverage and I'd actually pay the rights to release it as a DVD.
1: Well I think we've covered that pretty thoroughly.
0: Glory so, Goodbye everybody. I'm down in
1: glory land.
0: and I'm Captain Oats. Is it Captain Oats? The no, War Oats, isn't it?
1: Quaker Oats.
0: <gasps> That's the one. Yes. Scott's Pottage Oats. If I sneak into Wembley one night, start digging up the turf like Colin Farrell in the episode of Porridge, and I bury a packet of Scott's Pottage Oats underneath the grass, and then try and sort of put it all back down again, could I successfully curse the England team?
1: Don't think it needs that much.
0: <laughs> now, there was some legitimate football analysis right there. You've only been listening for an hour and a half, and there was some actual bona fide sporting analysis. There you go. And you say you don't know anything about football. Thank you very much indeed for listening. You probably guessed that we're not necessarily planning on making a series of World Cup preview <laughs> podcasts because that would be difficult to sort of sustain interest every four years. But we'll be back very soon with another of the Sitcom Club spin-offs. Do let us know what you think of the spin-offs. In the meantime, tweet us at the Sitcom Club or email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. Enjoy the World Cup, Ocho.
1: I have. My World Cup is over now.
0: I'm going to pull your team out of the Sitcom Club sweepstake and your team is Ecuador. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for listening and we'll be back soon with another summer sitcom spin-off podcast.